If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We'll be continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 4, verse 11. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. We'll be focusing on verses 12 to 13, but for the sake of context, we'll begin reading in verse 11. So hear now the living and active word of God. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Father, in a world of created and changeable things, we rejoice greatly in the fact that we look to Him who is the unshakable and unchanging Word. As we now turn our attentions to the preaching and the exposition of Scripture, we pray that by the Spirit that You would feed us and nourish us in the great green pasture that is Your Word. Reveal yourself to us. Refresh us in our souls. Bring the lost to faith. And above all else, we pray that you would be magnified in worship. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> to quickly review, two weeks ago we ended our study in verse 11, which we just read. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Now, for those of you who weren't here with us two weeks ago or perhaps don't remember, the rest that's being referred to here is not a physical kind of rest, but a spiritual rest. It's a rest that's referring to the spiritual eternal rest of salvation found in none other than Christ, the Son. Rest that's to be spent in eternity with God the Father. And so we read here, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And the example that the writer is referring to here is the example of the Israelites who fell in the wilderness. He's referring to the Israelites who failed to enter into the promised land of rest, which was symbolic in this context of that ultimate spiritual rest of God. And the reason for why they didn't enter, we read here, is because of disobedience. And so the question that we had to answer two weeks ago was, what was the essence, what was the agent that caused this disobedience? Because disobedience, at the end of the day, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't just show up out of thin air. But rather, disobedience is a manifestation or a symptom of something far and much deeper. And so looking at chapter 3, verse 19, we read here, 
that the essence, the core of Israel's disobedience was their unbelief. Their unbelief. It was their unbelief in chapter 4, verse 2, their unbelief in the word which they heard that ultimately kept them out of God's rest. It was the word which they heard that did not profit them. Why? Because it was not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The word which the Israelites received from God was acknowledged but not embraced. It was audibly heard, but it was not cherished. It was received, but it was not treasured nor valued because the reception of the word was not mixed with, or as some of your translations might have, it was not united by faith. Now remember, there's a way to receive God's word in such a way that's not pleasing to God. And usually when I say something like that, it pricks up some ears. There's a way to receive God's word in such a way that actually dishonors and displeases the Lord. Meaning, the mere receiving of God's word, the mere listening to or reading of God's word or knowing God's word is not what pleases God. But rather, what is pleasing to God is when his word is embraced and treasured and counted most valuable by faith. There exists an eternal divide between merely knowing God by facts versus knowing God by faith. It's not facts of Christ that saves, but it's faith in Christ that does. It's not the receiving of God's word that saves, but rather it's the faith that looks to Christ, that believes and obeys in the word of God that does. And it's this very faith in the Lord that then welcomes the sinner into the rest of God. That's the reason for why in verse 11 we find that great exhortation, therefore be diligent to enter into that rest. The Lord, out of His great love for us, His children, calls us to be vigilant to enter into that rest. He warns us not to live in a state of disobedience. He instructs us not to be unbelieving in the word that we've received like the Israelites in the wilderness. Why? Now, looking at verse 12. The reason why? Verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, we're called to be vigilant to enter into God's rest because God's word is not dead. These are not dead words. These are not dead threats. These are not dead promises. But we're called to be diligent to enter God's rest because His Word is alive. It's active. It's dynamic. And it's full of life. And so here, we now find ourselves in verses 12 and 13. And Within these two verses, there are two points that I want us to focus on tonight, which will serve as our outline today. With the overarching theme being God's Word, the overarching theme being God's Word, the two points are as follows. First, 
Verse 12, our first point is the attributes of God's word. And the second point is the ability of God's word. So again, the first point, verse 12, is the attributes of God's word. And point number two, verse 13, the ability of God's word. So here we go, verse 12, the attributes of God's word. We read here in verse 12 again, for the word of God is living and powerful. The first attribute that we're given here in verse 12 is that the word of God is living. If we were to take a step back and syntactically examine this verse in the original language, the word that we would find placed in the very front of this verse isn't the conjunction for, but is actually the participle zone, the word living. And so if we were to more plainly translate this verse, it would be right for us to understand and translate this verse as living is the word of God. Alive is God's word. Now we often hear it said to save the best for last. But in this case, the writer of Hebrews, by prioritizing and placing the word living in the very front, is in a way beginning with the best first. It's as if he's intentionally drawing all the attention to and emphasizing this one characteristic of God's word, that it's a lie. This again to say that the Bible is not a dead letter. It's not a dead book. It's not a book that dissipates in power and efficiency as it goes forth from the mouth. But on the contrary, this word is a living word. It's a book that cannot fail but to be living just as the God of the word is living. Meaning, as God is the God who acts with power, writes Philip Hughes, His word cannot fail to be active and powerful. Its effectiveness derives from its very source, which is God himself, and from its purpose, which is the will of God. But oh, brothers and sisters, how many times and how often do we not look upon the word of God and read the Bible as if it is a dead as if it is but a stagnant book, as if it is but a book filled with words that are stale, simply printed upon a white page. Beloved, in recognizing this first attribute of God's word, we must emphatically understand that this word is universally unlike any other book. Many a times we have heard of books that are described to be thrilling and exciting. Books that are mysterious and engaging. Many a times we have heard of books that are convicting and captivating, intriguing and stimulating, compelling and thought-provoking, but never have we ever heard of a book that is alive and living. This first attribute that we find here in verse 12, is one that we must emphatically recognize and never cease to forget nor be amazed by. That the word of God that we hold in our very hands is a living word. The second attribute that we find is that the word of God is powerful. Or as some of your translations might have, it's active or effective. 
And the Greek word that's used here is the adjective energes, which sounds exactly like our English word energy. And very much in the same way as the word of God that is alive and living, it's that same word of God that is energizing in its effect. It's always moving and doing and accomplishing all that God has willed for it to accomplish. And this is exactly the same idea and message that's reflected in Isaiah 55, 11. And you guys know this verse very well. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me, what? Void. But it shall go forth and accomplish what I please and it shall prosper. It shall be effective in the thing for which I sent it. This is what the activity or the power of God's word means. This to say that the word of God as it goes forth is always effective and affecting those who hear and receive that word. The word of God that is alive and active is the word of God that is alive and effective. And may I quickly add that by the very nature of God's word being effective, his word demands a response. There exists no option nor any room for indifference. As God's word is read and shared and proclaimed, as it goes forth, it's guaranteed that the one receiving the word will either be affected in one of only two ways that the word of God is either being rejected or the word of God is being received. The word of God as it goes forth in its living and accomplishing nature is either affecting the receiver negatively in judgment or affecting the receiver positively in faith. It's either being 1 Corinthians 1.18, it's either being counted as foolishness to those who are perishing or it's being received as the power of God of those who are being saved. Which leads us directly to the third attribute. The Word of God is sharp. God's Word here, it's not only described to be a sword, but is specifically described to be a double-edged sword. Speaking in the obvious, this is a weapon where there exists no blunt or dull side to it. This to say that the Word is an instrument of God, a spiritual weapon of the Lord that never fails to cut whichsoever direction it's swung. It's always cutting. It's always effective, which again only goes to emphasize the previous attribute, the power and the effectiveness of God's Word. The Word of God as it goes forth living, effectively moving, is always cutting in one of only two ways, either in a saving manner or in a judging manner. On the one hand, Christ is either proclaiming to you, John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Or on the other hand, Jesus is saying to those of you who reject his word, John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. And the word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. There are only two options here. 
The word of God is sharp and it's always effective as it goes forth. And again, it's either cutting to judge or it's cutting to save. Fourth, verse 12 not only characterizes God's word as sharp, but also penetrating. We read, for the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. Now, I think we can all agree that this verse, Hebrews 4, verse 12, is perhaps one of the most well-known and most recited verses in all of Scripture. But I would also propose to you all that this verse is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and misused verses of Scripture. The reason being that many have historically tried to use and teach this verse as some sort of psychological or anatomical analysis of the human body, of, of man's frame and makeup. That man is made up of certain parts and a variety of pieces. But without getting too far into that, the main point that the writer is communicating here is that God's word is able to penetrate into and pierce into the innermost depths of man. It's in between the the intimacy of the, the soul and of the spirit, between joints and marrow, that the word of God effectively works. That in the words of Calvin, that there exists nothing so hard or firm in a man, nothing so deeply hidden that the efficacy of God's word does not penetrate through it. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, as we're reading this, is he's using symbolism to demonstrate and communicate that what man cannot ordinarily divide, it's God's word alone that divides and separates thoroughly. As the word of God goes forth, alive, active, and sharp, there is nothing to man or within man that remains untouched by Scripture. God's word addresses every aspect, every part, every fiber of man's entire being. Furthermore, the word that's used here for divide is a word that's used only once in the whole of the New Testament and it's used right here. But this is a very specific kind of word that's to communicate a progressive and continual action. This to say that the word of God, as it goes forth, doesn't just merely divide the soul and spirit and joints and marrow as if it's a one-time deal, as if it's a one-time thing. But it continues and will continue to keep dividing the very existence of man. The word that is both alive and active, moving and effective, is that very same word that continues to go down and pierce and dig deeper and deeper and deeper, unraveling more and more into the very most hidden crevices within man. And it's within that dividing line between soul and spirit where the, where the one passes into the other where the Word of God does its most effective work. 
It's in the most intimate relationship between soul and spirit. In that that realm where the word of God works and moves powerfully. But what exactly is it doing there? What's it doing there in that, that space there? We read here that it's discerning. The fifth attribute of the word of God is that it's discerning. Looking down again at verse 12, the end of verse 12, we read, the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, there is nothing in this world that could be more inaccessible and intangible than the notions and motives that are concealed within the very depths of man's mind. There's no instrument, there's no scalpel that can dissect them. There's no electronic device or detector that can discover them. And it's here that the Word of God as the great discerner or judge, it's here that the Word works and moves most powerfully. And I want you to quickly notice that the writer doesn't say, if you look down again, the writer doesn't say that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the mind because naturally if we read something like that we would think that thoughts and intentions and intents come from the mind but we read here that the word of god is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the what the heart which is to say that the essence of humanity's plight is not with the mind but with the heart We see examples of this all throughout the gospel narratives time and time again that man's problem is not so much with the mind as much as it is with the heart. So looking down again at verse 12, the heart that's referred to here is not referring to the physical or anatomical heart, but as one commentator describes the heart as the central seat of human personality, the deep fount of man's life in all its aspects, spiritual, intellectual, moral, and emotional. The heart that's in view here in verse 12 is the radical center of human selfhood. And it's within this humanly impossible, unreachable realm that the Word of God, by God the Spirit, does its most effective and dynamic and regenerative work. Beloved, in all all of this, we clearly see in verse 12 that it's the Word of God alone that can discern and diagnose what is truly going inside, going on inside each and every one of us in here. You might think and even believe yourselves to know yourselves very well. And perhaps you think you know yourselves the best. But how often do we not find ourselves to be our worst critics? Our own worst critics. Not because we have low self-esteem, but rather because we often think too highly of ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we see here in verse 12 that you're not equipped to properly discern your own motives and your own intentions. We can only begin to imagine, we can only begin to scratch the surface in understanding just how deep and how hard and corrupt and calloused our hearts really are. I believe 
that one of the greatest and most condemnable lies that the world has ever sold to mankind is that phrase, listen to your hearts. Follow your hearts. Listen to your heart. Your heart knows best. Friends, I tell you, don't listen to your hearts. The Word of God tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Don't listen to your hearts. Listen to the Word of God, I say. It's the Word alone that is able to divide and discern the thoughts and the intentions of your hearts rightly. Not your hearts. Your heart is the problem here, not the solution. Augustine rightly confesses, without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? Left to your own hearts, it's a promise, my friends, that you'll only lead yourselves to your own destruction. The proud, they do not recognize that they're proud. The self-righteous cannot recognize their own self-righteousness. Sinful humanity is guaranteed to fall short to recognize their own sinfulness. But it's the Word of God that is the great discerner and the great discoverer of what's inside of each and every one of us. It reveals to us what we think. It reveals to us what we are, how we are, and who we are. Verse 13, we read, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked or exposed and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The sixth attribute of God's word, which is also the second point of our outline for tonight, is that the word of God is a revealing word. The ability of God's word is that it reveals. It has the ability to expose and to place into plain sight the deepest thoughts and the intentions of man. Verse 13 drives home the very fact that God's word, like the double-edged sword that it is, cuts and penetrates the innermost center of man's selfhood so that every single detail and every aspect of the human person is fully and inexhaustibly open to the gaze of God. There exists no creature, no single thing or thought in the whole world, the whole of creation that's hidden or exposed or rather unexposed before the creator. Which means, young ones, if there's any young ones in here, see anybody, Caleb, singling you out. Which means that it's very much possible to fool and trick your parents. Singles. It's very much possible to fool your friends and it's easy to cover up your deepest and darkest sins. Brothers and sisters, it's possible to fool your family and your friends, your accountability partners, your small group leaders, your pastors and your elders and even your spouse. But I tell you and I warn you this day that there is one whom you can never fool and that is God. It is He who exposes all things. It is He who knows all things and sees all things. It is He who knows every single thought, every single motive, every single word and deed that's ever been committed. And He sees it all. It's God who sees all things. 
It's God who not just sees, but exposes. He will expose all things because He knows all things. You know, one of my favorite things to do these days is roll around with my daughter, Charlotte. And one of her favorite things that we do together that really gets her going and laughing is when I scare her by chasing her around her room. And whenever I chase her down... She always does this thing where she almost instinctively reaches out and grabs this see-through silk scarf blanket thing that's about yay big. And right before I can grab her and catch her, she gets this see-through scarf and she puts it over her head. And she just sits there with this big grin with the scarf over her head. And she sits there with a big grin and she's seeing through this scarf and she's acting like I can't see her as if she really got away from me. But I'm obviously sitting there seeing her seeing me. And I think to myself every time this happens, what a funny little girl. But I got to thinking as I was preparing this week, isn't this how we often are with our Heavenly Father? Hiding behind our own see-through blanket as it were, as if God can't see us? hiding behind a glass door, as it were, as if God can't see what we're thinking or doing, thinking we can get away with things, thinking that we can do this or do that or say this or say that, live in this way or that way like God has no clue, like He's not there. The ability that we find here in verse 13 is that God's Word reveals. There's no creature that's hidden from his sight. He sees all things. He knows all things. And all of us were all laid bare and exposed in front of the one whom we all have to give, as we read here, give an account. If we were to take a step back and put everything that we've learned so far back together, we would quickly come to recognize that there exists within each and every one of us this profound and fundamental problem. While God's word exhorts us to be diligent and to enter into his rest, lest anyone fall according to the example of disobedience, there exists within each and every one this this temptation to just do, do, do. You call me to be diligent. I'll do it. I need to do it. I need to do it. I need to, I just need to do it and achieve it for myself. But we see here in verses 12 and 13 that it's the word of God that stands over us as a sharp two-edged sword, penetrating us right at the very heart and soul of who we are. It pierces and opens us wide open and it begs for us not necessarily to do, not necessarily to do and do and do, but the word of God calls us to listen. That one day, and there will come a day for each and every one of us, a day when you'll have to give an account before the one who knows all things. There will come a day when you'll have to give a reckoning to and take moral responsibility with the one who sees all things, to the one who has seen all things that you've ever done and ever said and ever, ever thought. The Word of God was not given to us by our Lord, to pat us on the 
the back or on the head to tell us that we're doing a good job. But one of the greatest graces in life that flows from the Word of God is that it slays us. The Word of God, it kills us by revealing to us our sins. It kills us by revealing to us that we're liars and murderers and adulterers and prideful and self-righteous and self-loving, self-worshipping, and the list goes on and on and on. The Word of God was not given to us for us to think that we've been diligent enough or good enough or we did enough, but rather to reveal to us that even at our very best, our works are filled and saturated with sin. It's the Word of God that exposes our humility as pride. And it's the Word of God that exposes our self-righteous holiness as hypocrisy. Friends, there's a reason why, and I've always loved this verse because I always needed to remind myself of this verse, but there's a reason why in Matthew 6, 3, Jesus exhorts his listeners by saying, but whatever you do, whenever you do a charitable deed, he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know why he has to say that? He says that because he knows we have a sin problem. He knows that we have pride issues, that whenever we do any sort of good, that we're immediately prone into thinking, saying to ourselves, you did that? Great job. Did you see that? I did that. That was me. I'm the man. Praise me. Brothers and sisters, the word of God that pierces and splits us wide open from top to bottom is indeed a sword of judgment against those who reject it. But I want you to take great comfort in knowing that for those of us in Christ, that this very same word is a sword of love. Though it is indeed a sword that kills, it's also a sword like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled doctor, a sword that heals. Puritan Thomas Brooks writes, The word of the Lord is a light to guide you, a counselor to counsel you, a comforter to comfort you, a staff to support you, a sword to defend you, and a physician to cure you. The word is a mind to enrich you, a robe to clothe you, and a crown to crown you. And how true and how sweet these words are. So take great comfort in hearing this, Christian. Until you've been split top to bottom by the word, unless you see your utter helplessness, the sheer impossibility of making an account for yourselves and your sins before God, friends, you are not yet ready to receive the grace of God. It is only when you've been cut open and your sins and your depravity and your inability so exposed until you realize just how helpless you are, you are not yet ready to stand beneath the cross of Christ. Beloved, the word of God, it begs and it calls for you, for each and every one of us in here to draw near to place any vestige of any apparent goodness to the side and to take hold of Christ. 
For it is, as Philip Hughes writes, for it is against the background of human guilt and powerlessness that the grace of God, which is in Christ alone, brings forgiveness and victory. And it's here at this point that the writer of Hebrews in verses 12 and 13 prepares us for what we're about to receive in verse 14. Receive Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great high priest, which we'll touch on next week as Pastor Dave will preach on that passage. Friends, it's only when we truly understand verses 12 and 13 And it's only when we feel, as it were, that cold steel of God's word upon our necks. It's only then when we can begin to truly understand the gravity and the necessity of our need for Christ. To see and recognize our desperate need for, verse 14, Jesus Christ as our great high priest. God's word kills, but it kills to make alive. It kills all that is dark within us to redirect our eyes to the light of Christ. This is what we must understand with great surety and with great clarity as we leave tonight. And as we draw to close now, I want to end our time together with three points of application. First, if you ever find yourselves feeling stagnant, especially in prayer, Dwell in close proximity and live in the Word. Just as the Word of God is alive and effective, it is the Word of God by the Spirit that will effectively make you alive. Second, related to the first, if you ever find yourselves weak or discouraged or discontented, throw yourselves upon the Word of God. Rest yourselves upon the One who is Himself the Word for power. Rest yourselves upon the one who supplies that power. It's Holy Scripture that will be used by God to serve as the best source of strength. And you must habitually drive yourselves into the comforts of God's Word. And just as the Word of God is powerful, it is the Word by the Spirit that will be powerfully used by God to strengthen you. And lastly, Never cease to revere the Word of God. Never cease to revere the Word of God. Revere the Word not simply by having the Bible, not by possessing the Bible, not by holding the Bible or by carrying the Bible once a week back and forth to church, but revere the Word of God by daily reading the whole counsel of His Word. Revere the Word by praying the Word, by meditating upon the Word, by living in the Word, by being impressed with the truths of God upon your hearts and by taking it with you wherever you go. The Marian martyrs of the 16th century are recognized to be people who deeply loved God's Word. These were men who were never found without God's Word in their hands. So much so that it's been said that whenever Queen Mary's soldiers seized and killed a Christian, that the soldiers would have to forcefully forcefully pry the Bibles out of the martyrs' dead, cold hands. And to add further insult to their public executions, it was custom for the soldiers to take the martyrs' Bible and go to their dead body and dip their Bibles in the pool of their own blood. And it's been said that 
if you were to ever examine one of these Bibles, it would be often be easy to figure out whose Bible it belonged to as the owner's hands would be imprinted into the very covers of the Bibles because it was always in their hands. Furthermore, if one were to examine the quality within these Bibles, it's often observed that they would seemingly be almost unusable or unreadable as every page was to be stained with fingerprints and the texts blurred by the many droplets of water only to find out that it wasn't water that smeared the ink, but the tears of the saints who were reading that word. No, friends, what great examples we have in the saints of God who have come and gone before us. Pillar Baptist Church, it's my hope and prayer that we would be recognized here in our community, in the Bay, and in this world as a church filled with saints of God who love and treasure God's Word. As those who revere God's Word. As those who take hold of God's Word. That as we read the Word of God, which is at this very moment living and active and sharp and piercing, that it would drive us to rejoice in the God of that word. And that for his glory. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, we come confessing that we have far too often neglected your word. And by the neglect of your word, we have spent many hours unprofitably to our own detriment, starving ourselves from the very source of life. But praise be to God that the very word that we often neglect is that very same word that reminds us and teaches us of your will. That points us to the very word of life, the word of God incarnate. And as we look upon him and take hold of our dear Savior, grant to us more and more of that resurrection life. Strengthen us and empower us and rule us by your word that we might walk accordingly to its power. And that for your glory and your glory alone. We pray all this in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit and to the praise of the Father, three in one and one in three, forevermore. Amen.